Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Daniel, writing through the Spirit, writes, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And his clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. And his throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And I said, look, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are glorious. You are worthy of all of our worship. You created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, and with the word of your mouth spoke the sun and moon and stars into existence. You created us, humanity, And placed within us the very image of yourself. You are so magnificent and holy. And yet still you love us. Father we praise you this morning and thank you for your unending love for us. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to bear the burden of our sin on himself. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you Father for making a way for us. Father, as we start this new year, as we make resolutions, as we aim to please you in our lives, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and enable us to do so. Fill us with your mighty power that we might live lives that impact those around us. Fill us with power that we might advance your kingdom this year. And Father, when we fail, remind us of your grace that we so quickly forget. Pray that to you be all the glory, honor, and praise forever. Amen. Uh, Well, uh, good morning. This morning we are starting a series in the Gospel of Mark, um, and I'm really excited about it, and I'll kind of tell you why as we continue on this morning. But you may have noticed, some of you may not have noticed, it is the first Sunday of the new year, 2015. For some of you, probably for the last four days, you've been still writing 2014, that's okay. And as the year begins, we all know what that means. Everyone... 
begins to make the kind of infamous New Year's resolutions. Some people get really serious about them. Some people kind of take them as a joke. Some people just don't do them. And I'm not really going to judge that practice. I actually was doing just a little bit of research, and I found that statisticians say that people who make explicit resolutions and write them down actually are 10 times more likely to accomplish the things they want to accomplish than people who don't write them down or explicitly state what they want to achieve. So that's pretty interesting. And, you know, we all know the most popular resolutions, right? Lose weight, get in shape, get organized, get out of debt, get healthy, things like that. But when it comes to Christians, I think the one I've heard the most over the years is to read the Bible more, right? That's kind of what every Christian either wants to do or thinks they should want to do. And so either they're making this resolution seriously or they're just making it because they think that's what everyone else expects them to say. So they say it. But regardless, it's a worthy resolution. That's why we're spending our Sunday school time the next 12 weeks looking at how do we study the Bible? How do we read the Bible? It may not be as simple as we think, or it may be simpler than we think. Sometimes I think it's both. And so we look at God's Word, what could be a more worthy resolution than to resolve to spend more time and to draw closer to God through the reading of His Word? And so I would encourage you this year, make that a resolution, as Rob said Make it a resolution to maybe you're going to read through the Bible the first time this year and complete. It's definitely doable. Maybe you just want to take the New Testament. It's definitely doable. Maybe you just want to take a single book like the Gospel of Mark that we're studying here and just go over and over and over and really let it sink in. It's doable. Okay, I'm going to read the Bible more. And we think, well, where should I start? And that's kind of the tough question. Sometimes maybe our church suggests something like Mark. Sometimes we play that game where we sit down, okay, I'm going to read the Bible and we just go, Okay, today I'm going to read Psalm uh, 59 here. Okay, let's see, you know. And that has its benefits, I guess. But as we start this morning in Mark, I just want to encourage you. Mark is a great book for the brand new believer and the old and mature believer alike. It's a great place to start reading Scripture. If, if you've never been serious about getting into Scripture, Mark is a great place to start. But there's only one problem. So often we begin reading the Bible, and we all know this happens, and then we stumble onto a verse or something that we can't figure out, and we get frustrated and then give up. Often when Christians, as we think about reading the Bible, we think of one style of reading the Bible. We could call this style analytical reading the Bible, meaning we read by verses. And we kind of read bite-sized pieces. And what happens is, as we kind of go verse by verse, if we don't understand a verse, we go, well, i got to just sit here until I figure out what this verse means, and then I can continue. And if we can't figure it out, we get discouraged, like I said. And that's great, and it can be a helpful way to read and understand God's Word, but it's not the only way. So let me just challenge you with two questions here as we kind of are getting into this is, when was the last time you read any other book like that? Probably never. There's never a time where you would sit and read a book sentence by sentence, analyzing each sentence word by word, because that's not how reading really works. I mean, maybe if you're reading like a math problem or a physics textbook or something like that, you kind of need to go step by step or like an uh, argument from logic or something. But the problem is, is that's the way we usually read a textbook. But the Bible's not a textbook. That's the problem. And so often we approach it like it's a textbook about God, and it's not. It's a work of literature about God. It's a compilation of stories, letters, poems, songs, and history, wisdom. And so we need to approach the Bible how it should be approached. And we need to try to understand it like we would try to understand any other book, albeit maybe with more earnestness or seriousness, maybe more reverence. 
So how do we read other books? Well, when we read and we come across something we don't understand, what do we do? We continue reading, and as we go, we try to understand it based on kind of the larger picture of the story. I mean, think about it this way. I'll illustrate it with kind of a movie, and I try to pick a movie that hopefully everyone's seen. Think back to the first time you saw Star Wars, okay? The very first time. Maybe you can remember, maybe you can't. Now, in the beginning, when Luke, remember, Luke goes out to the desert, and he meets this old guy, old Ben Kenobi, right? He doesn't know who he is. And remember, if it's your first time seeing the movie, you don't know who he is either. And, you know, he starts talking about the Force and all this kind of weird stuff. And again, if it's your first time, you have no idea what he's talking about. Well, what did you do? You didn't just pause the movie and go, okay, now i got to figure out what is going on here. i got to figure out what this force thing is, and then I can continue on. No. You keep watching the movie, and you kind of figure it out as you go along. And now what? After the 20th time seeing it, as you watch it, every time you watch it, you kind of pick up on different things. That happens with all movies. Or even if you've read a book a second time, you pick up on different things. It's the same with the Bible. The first time through a book or the first time going through part of it, you're not going to get every single little part. And if you put that kind of pressure on yourself, you're going to get really discouraged reading it. And you're just going to give up because it's impossible. Well, we need to look at the Bible and read the Bible the same way we'd read any other book. If there's something you don't understand, that's okay. Continue on, get the big picture, and then try to go back and get the little parts as you go along. And so the second or third time through a book, and that's why I love what Rob is suggesting is, For some of us, I mean, we're just going to be sitting in the Gospel of Mark over and over and over because that's the way we really let it sink in and understand because we know we can't get it all the first time. And that needs to happen when we read the Bible. And so this is how we study Scripture if we're going to understand it. We don't get caught up on every little thing that we don't understand, but we keep reading. We finish the book, we come back, and as we repeat this process over and over with different books in the Bible, over the course of our lives, we come to understand more and more of the Bible and therefore more and more of who God is. The second question I would ask is, when was the last time you read a biblical book all the way through in one sitting? Now, I went to Biola, a Bible college in La Mirada, and so before I had gone there, my answer would have been never. And so maybe for some of you, that's your answer. I've never read a biblical book all the way through. You know, maybe, maybe Jude or something. That's one chapter, sure. Maybe it was recent. Maybe you have. Maybe you never have. Or maybe you're very ambitious and you've attempted to, but maybe you've chosen a book like Isaiah or Jeremiah that's like 100 chapters long, and you just get discouraged and stop. But my encouragement would be, especially for books that are manageable, like Mark, 16 chapters, if you sit down and read it in one sitting, you make a commitment, you can read in about an hour. It's not that hard. And here's what I'll encourage you with. And this is all kind of beside the point. This is just my encouragement to you on your New Year's, is that if you sit down and tackle a book like that in one sitting, I guarantee you, you will have a new appreciation and understanding for what that book means. I I still remember the first time that I had to do this. Again, I was taking a New Testament class, and we had to read the book of Revelation in one sitting. That was the homework assignment. Up until that point, I kind of looked at Revelation like, man, I have no idea what that book is even talking about. You know, okay, end time, something about, okay, great. But I remember sitting and reading that book through in one sitting. Now, I'm not claiming I know everything it's talking about, but I will say that reading it through in one sitting, you kind of go, oh, okay. I can see the progression of thought. I can see the storyline. I can kind of get the big picture of what John is trying to say here. And it just opens your eyes. The same with the Gospel of Mark. The same with really any of these books that are narratives. The same with the letters of Paul. If you just kind of take a step back and read 
for a big picture, you can follow the thought process and understand it in a new way so that when you come back to the more confusing parts, you can place it in that framework and say, okay, I see how that fits in now. I get why he's talking about that. So my encouragement to you is to do this. I call this reading for the big picture, reading for the main theme. It looks a little bit different than normal reading because, again, you're not focusing on every little thing. You're reading just to try to get a big picture view. Almost like skimming, but a little more detailed. So I'd encourage you, if you've never tried that, try it out this year. Take the book of Mark. Set aside an hour one day and say, you know what? I'm going to get through the book of Mark. I guarantee it will open your eyes. And you'll see it in a whole new light. It's a great thing to help us understand the Bible. And so just think about it. Challenge yourself this year to set aside some time. Try to knock out a whole book in one sitting. Like I said, if, if that sounds too much, try a smaller book. Try James. Try 1 John. I mean, five chapters, you could probably get through that in about 25 minutes, half hour. Very helpful, very helpful. And start small and work your way up. And if you do this, again, I think you'll be very surprised at how much it helps you. All that to say, we're looking at Mark this year. We're starting in Mark. And so today, kind of as I've been talking about, this big picture idea of looking at Scripture, that's what we're going to do today for Mark. So we're calling this the 20,000-foot flyover kind of of Mark. So we're going to look at the whole book of Mark today and kind of try to capture what is Mark trying to say? Why did he write this book? What's he trying to do? People don't write books by accident. I mean, the Bible didn't just fall down out of heaven like it is. I mean, Mark wrote the gospel. Mark, so why? What is he trying to say to us? That's what we're going to look at today. And so, as we start, we're going to see a couple things. And really, too, my goal this morning is to prepare our hearts to meet Jesus in this series, because what we're going to come to find out is that the Gospel of Mark is about Jesus. It's about who Jesus was, why he came, and what he did. So I really want us to to prepare our hearts this morning for this morning's message, but also just for the whole series, to meet Jesus. Jesus will speak to us through the Gospel of Mark. And so instead of taking a passage this morning and, and kind of going off that, Again, I'm going to try to take the whole book and kind of give you the thrust of the argument here of what he's trying to do. And so, the obvious question then is, well, where do we start with that? Well, the most natural question when looking at a book like this is, well, who wrote it? Who wrote the Gospel of Mark? It may seem like an obvious answer to just say, well, it's the Gospel of Mark, so Mark wrote it. Well, yes, but if you've ever read the Gospel of Mark, you may know that nowhere in the actual book is it attributed to Mark. Mark never says, like Luke, I, Luke, am writing this to you, or, you know, John says, um, you know, it's me, John, hey, I'm writing this book. Mark doesn't do that. Mark doesn't sign his name at the bottom. So how do we know that Mark wrote it, right? Well, we have early, 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 early church fathers that are writing telling us that Mark wrote this book. So I don't know if you guys knew this, but we, not only do we have fragments of the New Testament dating within 20 years of the New Testament, we actually have copies of guys writing who knew the apostles in New Testament times. So, for example, there's a guy named Papias, who was a church father, who lived during the times of the apostles, who knew the apostles, and he writes and tells us that, hey, John Mark, this guy, wrote the Gospel of Mark. So we know, right? And it's not only him. We have tons of sources that tell us this. So we can understand this based on tradition. Well, which Mark is it? And we know that it's this guy named John Mark. And John is simply his Jewish name. 
Mark is his Roman name. It's not like he had two first names, but they call him John Mark, kind of in the book of Acts. And so now, of course, so John Mark, okay. Well, do we know anything about John Mark? And we do. Perhaps the most significant thing about Mark is that he, unlike Matthew or John, and like Luke, was not an apostle of Jesus. So he wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Um, John Mark, and we can just call him Mark from now on, was most likely the cousin of Barnabas, if you know anything about the book of Acts. Barnabas, Paul, and Mark traveled together on Paul's first missionary journey and spread the gospel. So Mark had extended exposure to the apostle Paul and extended exposure to Barnabas, who was another one of the founding fathers kind of of the faith, and was part of their missionary team until the team split up and Mark went with Barnabas, his cousin. So he spent a lot of time with these two, who were very influential in the early church. Also, we know that he was very close with the apostle Peter. In Acts 12, when Peter gets released from prison by the angel, the first place he goes is to Mark's mom's house, where the church is meeting. And so not only does the Apostle Peter, does he know the Apostle Peter, but his mom, actually, it seems like her house was where the church was, one of the first churches. Peter also mentions Mark in the end of his first letter, in 1 Peter 5.13. He says, Mark also sends his greetings. Now, all this we learn from Scripture, but again, we can get a little more from church tradition. Again, the early church father, Papias, who knew the Apostles, was writing during their time, writes about Mark and tells us that he learned almost everything that he wrote in his Gospel from the Apostle Peter. This is why most often the Gospel of Mark is kind of known as Peter's kind of version of the events. Uh, It's his perspective on things. And if you read it, after knowing that, you can kind of begin to see it. Like, man, there's a vividness in Mark that is just extraordinary. Um, But we also must remember that while Mark was not an apostle, he most likely still knew Jesus, and he definitely was around Jerusalem in the time of Jesus' ministry. And so that's what we know about Mark, the man. So now let's look at the book, the Gospel of Mark. Well, here are some quick facts. Gospel of Mark that you may or may not already know. It's the shortest gospel of the four, coming in at 16 chapters. Um, Like I said earlier, in one sitting, it takes only about an hour to read all the way through. It contains very little actual teaching by Jesus, which is interesting. Most of the book is actually just the story of events happening, not extended discussions by Jesus. It's a very action-packed, action-focused gospel. For example, Mark only contains seven parables, whereas Luke has 25 parables. So you can see even right there, it's just very much focused on the events. What did Jesus do? Who was he? Mark is such a quick book that it doesn't even start with the birth of Jesus. It starts with the ministry of John the Baptist, and by verse 9 of chapter 1, we're already seeing Jesus' ministry begin. He's already getting baptized by John, and he's right into it. It's a fast-paced, action-packed book. Another interesting fact, and one that you may have picked up on if you have read Mark before, is that his favorite and most used word is the word immediately. Or some of your Bibles may translate it, depending on your version, as straight away, kind of old school version. But he uses this word over 40 times in the book. If you turn to chapter 1, you can just take a little sampling real quick. You can see like in verse 10, it says, When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. In verse 12, he says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Verse 18, he says, And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 20, And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat 
Verse 21, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Verse 23, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And 29, and immediately he left the synagogue. And immediately they told him about her. I mean, it just immediately, immediately, immediately. Okay, Mark, we get the point. It's happening very fast. But it just goes to show that Mark's trying to show the immediacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's trying to write a vivid, action-packed account that grabs our attention. And as you read it, he succeeds. It does. And so we see that Mark is serious about the immediacy of the events that happened. And I believe he was also serious about the immediacy of the necessity to get the message out to everybody. But I think for me, my favorite thing about the Gospel of Mark is kind of the way that he writes about some of the events that happens. Mark includes a lot of details that some of the other writers leave out for whatever reasons. And the way he writes really served to bring some of the events to life. Perhaps this was because he knew Peter and Peter's kind of telling his version. But to illustrate this, I just want to kind of read a couple of samples from the Gospel of Mark and a couple of these little stories and just listen to the kind of vividness of the descriptions that he gives. You can follow along in your Bible or you can just listen as I read. So like in Mark 5.1, he says this, They came to the other side of the sea and to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. It's just a vivid telling of the events of the day. Again, in Mark 6, we read the story, it says this, And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. You can almost hear the apostle Peter, right, remembering that, man, we couldn't even eat. I didn't like it, right? And the story continues. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Or even in chapter 8, we hear this story. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. When Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. And so that's just kind of a small taste of Mark's style. Some of the things we'll be getting into as we explore this gospel in in the coming series. It's really a beautifully written piece that puts the character 
and actions of Jesus on display. It's a great book to read for new Christians or for those who aren't Christians who are just really looking to explore what is Christianity about? Who is this Jesus guy that everyone keeps talking about? The Gospel of Mark is a great place to start. It's a great book to introduce those to Jesus himself. And so now that we've seen a little bit of Mark's style, we know a little about Mark, kind of the structure of his book, what is Mark's main purpose? What is he writing about? Well, when you read Mark, it becomes clear that he has one main overarching goal, and that's to introduce the reader to the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, as he calls him. Mark's entire gospel is aimed at this one purpose, to teach about who Jesus was, namely about who Jesus himself said he was. And naturally, this is what our entire series is then going to be about. Who did Jesus say he was? What did he do? And why did he do what he did? Why does this matter for us here and now, 2,000 years later? So what I want to do now is kind of give a preview of some of the things we're going to see. As you look at Mark, what are some of the main themes? Well, one of the main themes you see in Mark is this. Jesus has authority. As you read through Mark, if you kind of observe, you'll see that Mark again and again shows instances of Jesus having this strange authority over different things. He just has authority. It's almost like palpable to the people living at the time. He has authority over all things. It's almost like Mark is trying to yell this from the page. Hey, check this out. Jesus has authority over everything. Here's some examples that we see, things that Jesus has authority over. We see that Jesus has authority in his teaching. Listen to these words in chapter 1. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. See, the people that heard Jesus teach were amazed that he taught with such authority. He taught like he actually knew what he was talking about. He actually believed these things. The way Mark describes it, it's almost as if Jesus' authority and his teaching was palpable in the air. There was just something that the people noticed that was different about him and the teachers of the day. The way he taught was different. He taught as one who had authority. The way he talked about things, what he talked about, they had never experienced this before. So he had authority when he taught. Mark also shows that Jesus had authority over demons. This is big in Mark's gospel. There are multiple stories of demons obeying the authority of Jesus. One great example is in chapter 1, 23 through 27. Mark writes, And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So we see that Jesus commands demons, and they obey him. That's truly amazing. No one else had the authority to do that. We also see in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus has authority over disease and sickness. Again, Mark is filled with stories, and we're going to look at some of these in our series, of Jesus healing people. He heals people of paralysis, incessant bleeding, blindness, deafness, muteness, and on and on and on. And all he does is say the word, or sometimes he doesn't even say anything. Sometimes someone just touches him, and they're healed. 
We see that he has authority over disease and sickness. We also see in Mark something quite amazing, that Jesus has authority over the natural world. And this is something that we see in chapter 4 of Mark, as we come upon the disciples in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and a storm arises. Listen as Mark tells what happens. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat. So this isn't just a couple bumps in the ocean. The waves are breaking into the boat. They think they're going to sink. So that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. He's asleep in the middle of the storm. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, listen to their reaction. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's incredible. See, Mark records their true reaction. Their reaction wasn't, oh, that was awesome. They're terrified. Like, who the heck is this guy? That he just, this literally just happened. He just told the wind to stop and the wind stopped. And that question that the disciples ask is one that we must all answer. Who then is this? The one that even the wind and sea obey. So we see that he has authority over the natural world. We also see that he has authority to forgive sins. Perhaps even more remarkable than any other claims to authority is Jesus' claim to forgive sins. In chapter 2 of Mark, when Jesus tells the paralytic that his sins have been forgiven, the Pharisees immediately understand what he is saying. See, their question is, who are you? No one has authority to forgive sins but God. And they were exactly right. And eventually, Jesus' authority becomes so unbearable to the Pharisees because they can't deny it, because it's so real, that they just say, well, then he must just be filled with a demon. And I, and I hope you catch that. Now, the Pharisees, they weren't claiming that Jesus didn't have power, because they couldn't. It was too obvious. He obviously had the power, so they just had to make up something. Uh, it must be from a demon. That's where he's getting his power. That's how obvious his power was. They couldn't just say, oh, that Jesus guy, he's a fake. They couldn't. It was undeniable. So they had to say, no, he's evil. That's what it is. Catch that. They can't deny his authority and a power. All they can do is hope to brush it off and attribute it to something else. They have seen it, and so has everyone else. Now, Mark tells us undeniably that when Jesus came, he came as one who had authority. He taught with authority. He healed with authority. The demons obeyed him. Disease fled from his presence. The natural world itself bowed the knee to him. And he even claimed authority to forgive sins. The big question then is, why? Why did he have this authority? Who gave him this authority? How was he able to do these things? Who was he that he was able to do these things? Well, Jesus answers this question in the Gospel of Mark, really with one title, the Son of Man. See, a lot of times when we talk about Jesus, we emphasize that, well, he was the Son of God, which is true. 
But if you examined all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you tallied up all the different titles that were given to Jesus, and you tallied up all the different numbers and looked at which one was attributed to him most, which one he attributed him to himself most, you would find that's not Son of God. It's the Son of Man. That was Jesus' favorite title for himself, especially in the Gospel of Mark that stands out. His most used self-designation, I am the Son of Man. Well, so what does that mean? Because somehow these two questions are, are linked. Where does Jesus' authority come from? Who is he that he's able to do these things? Jesus' answer in the Gospel of Mark is, because I'm the Son of Man. And so to understand that, we need to understand kind of the context of his times. What was going on? What would the people of his time have understood when he said this? Because he constantly said to them, I am the Son of Man. He almost used it in like a third-person sense when he would tell the disciples he was going to die. He said, the Son of Man must go and die. And so we have to understand when we look that the Son of Man has a couple of qualities that are really important to understanding Jesus. The Son of Man, first off, is human. In the first half of the Old Testament, the term Son of Man is used to refer to humans, just as in a distinction against God. So Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. In other words, God's not like you. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to lie. He's not a human. So we see that by identifying himself as the son of man, Jesus is identifying himself with humanity. He's saying, I'm one of you, in a sense. But we also see, if we look at the Old Testament, that the Son of Man is more than human. Because as you may have realized, the scripture reading this morning in Daniel contained this phrase. And that was intentional because in the prophecies of Daniel, in the Old Testament, he prophesied about one like a Son of Man who would one day be given dominion and kingship over all things. See, in Mark, Jesus declares himself to be this very person by calling himself the Son of Man. And if you read Daniel carefully, you can see that this person is not a mere human, but God himself. Indeed, in Mark 14.62, Jesus makes it plain by saying of himself, saying this to the Pharisees, as they question him before they crucify him, he says, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You may pick up, that's the exact same wording from Daniel 7. With this title, Jesus declares himself to be identified as the one in Daniel 7, God himself. We also see the Son of Man as a messenger. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel is known as the Son of Man in the Old Testament. And uniquely enough, the life of Ezekiel and Jesus match up pretty closely. Both were called to ministry at the age 30. Both were messengers sent from God. Both were hated by the people to which they spoke. Both brought a message of judgment, and both also brought a message of redemption. By calling himself the Son of Man, Jesus identifies himself as one of the long line of prophets sent from God with a message from God. And most importantly and finally, we see that the Son of Man is the Messiah. By identifying himself as the Son of Man, Jesus is declaring himself to be the Messiah, which simply means the Anointed One or the Christ. Christ just means Messiah in Greek. The one promised to come thousands of years earlier by God. The one whom the entire Old Testament pointed towards. The one who the entire nation of Israel was waiting and longing for the coming of the Messiah. We celebrated this during Christmas. The Messiah was the fulfillment of all things. He was the fulfillment of all the promises of God. And Jesus declares himself to be this very person. He is the one who has come to bear authority. The one who has come to die as a ransom 
for the sins of His people. The one who has come as Messiah to heal His people. He has come as Messiah to bear the cross for His people. He's come as Messiah to conquer death once and for all for His people. And one day, as we read in Daniel, He will come as judge and restorer to finally set all things right. To finally make all things new and to bring His people home face to face with God forever in the new creation. That's why we worship Jesus. We lift high the name of Jesus because of who He is, because of what He has done, because of who He said He was and then of how He proved it to be true, because of His great power and of His great love. Because of this, our hope for life and eternity rests on Christ and in Christ alone as we sung. My question is, is that true for you this morning? Are you trusting in Jesus as Messiah, as the anointed one? Do you trust him as the fulfillment of all things? Do you trust him as the fulfillment of all the promises of God? Do you trust him as your ransom? Do you trust his work on the cross for you? Do you believe that he is the Messiah? Do you submit to his authority? Are you safe from his judgment? Will you bow the knee to Jesus as king today? And you see, even as we look in Mark's gospel, we see that people responded very differently to Jesus. Some responded in faith and believed that he was who he said he was. These are the people who were healed, the ones who followed him. Ironically enough, it was not the religious people of the day who responded in faith to Jesus. It was the outcasts. It was the sinners. It was the people that all the religious people looked on and said, Ugh. It was those people who responded in faith to Jesus. It was those people who Jesus came for, people like you and me. It was the poor, the needy, the outcast. They loved Jesus and believed him. If this is you today, if you're feeling poor, needy, outcast, weak, Jesus is here for you. He is enough in that situation. And he will take you in no matter what. And he came for people like this, like you and me. So some people responded in faith as they saw Jesus and met him. Some people responded in confusion. The disciples were often like this. Half the time they had no idea what he's talking about. And in Mark, this is really clear. Mark's very honest. That's one of the reasons why we know that it's not a made-up book. Someone didn't just sit down and make this up. It's too honest. It's too embarrassing. The disciples do not come off as intelligent or faithful. They look kind of dull sometimes. Jesus is constantly saying to them in the Gospel of Mark, how do you not understand this yet? Right, we'll see that. Jesus' own family thought he was crazy. We'll see that in the Gospel of Mark. It's just filled with embarrassing stories. The disciples completely missing the point of what he's trying to say. They were very slow to learn. And I think that's where some of us are at this morning. Confused. Maybe just missing the point completely. Slow to learn. We may know it or we may be clueless. But if that's you this morning, just pray. I would encourage you to pray. Pray that God would pour out his grace on you to know him more deeply. Pray and thank God that the people he chose, the 12 disciples he chose, were like that. It shows that God has plenty of patience for people like me who are slow to learn and oftentimes confused and missing the point. He has grace enough for us in those times. Pray for change. And the third way that people responded to Jesus is that some responded in antagonism, meaning they fought against Jesus. 
They accused Jesus. They asked Jesus to leave. They even betrayed Jesus. They tried to trap him, tried to trick him, and eventually they tried to kill him, and they have succeeded. Let me be clear, though, and here's where I think we miss this. If you're here this morning and you're not living a life of faith in Jesus, you are accusing him. You're accusing him of being a liar because you're saying to him, you are not who you say you are. I do not believe who you say you are is true. You are lying. You are false. That's just the reality of the situation. If you're not trusting in Jesus, you are accusing him of being a liar. And you're fighting against him. My encouragement to you then this morning would be to give up this fight. It's futile and it ends only in judgment. Quit accusing him and put your faith in him. He's full of grace and love. See him in all his gloriousness because he has so much compassion that if you will turn to him, he will take you in. No matter how long you've been his enemy. Because that's the glorious truth is that once we were all his enemies and yet he came for us in spite of that. He cleanses us with his blood and indeed he died for all of us who were his enemies. But he cleanses us. My prayer is that none of us would leave here today without believing in Jesus as the divine Son of Man, the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament, the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Gospel of Mark, Lord. I pray that as we continue in our series, continue in our resolutions, continue in our our reading, Lord, may we be ever drawn closer to you, Father. Would you draw near to us, God? Would you make your presence felt and known to us, God? Would you grow us in holiness, Father? Lord, but above all these things, above all these things, Lord, I pray that for everyone here, Lord, you would open our eyes to know you more deeply, more fully, that we would understand your love more deeply this year, and that we would rest in your grace as we continue to live our lives, Father. Thank you for all that you've given us, all that you've said to us, all that you've poured out on us in your love and in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.